You're listening to the Discriminology Podcast, the podcast that arms you with the knowledge and the tools to dismantle discrimination. With me, one of your hosts, Malik Silau. Welcome back to Discriminology. So this is our third episode and it's pretty special because we have our first guest and I'm going to introduce him in a little bit, but I just kind of want to go over what we're going to be talking about today. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the significance of the recent rioting and looting, not only from a U.S. perspective, but also from a global history perspective. We're also going to take a bird's eye view of oppression and its byproducts across different historical events and cultures in an effort to present a clear understanding on what is happening today in the United States. So I am right now with my two co-hosts. Malik. And Sid. And Malik, will you please introduce our guest? Sure. So we are with no other than Steve Kramer. Uh, Steve Kramer has an undergraduate degree in history from Columbia. He's taught for 28 years. He's been around the U.S. He's taught in Compton, L.A., Houston, Washington, D.C., and finally Farmingdale, New York. So, Steve, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. It is great to be here with you guys. Very excited. Please teach us, drop some historical gems, and let's not waste any more time. Let's get right into it. So what's whole, the whole thing that's interesting about the BLM movement is just wording. So in the beginning of the movement, we went from how where people are rioting, people are looting, it's so destructive. And then as time went on, people really emphasized peaceful and how is demonstration really an educational aspect. So Mr. Kramer, what I wanted to ask you is in, in the US history, how is this also demonstrated? How are, how's the wording different from protest to protest or demonstration to demonstration? And what are some examples you've seen of this? I always try to teach my, uh, my classes, obviously I get them to look historically, I get them to look, to look back. So back to the beginning of America, how, how did we start? What, what were our first rebellions called? What were our first demonstrations called, right? So we always think about the Boston Tea Party, that this was a party that these people had, that they actually destroyed nearly $2 million worth of product in, in today's dollars. And the history books and Americans, this was a party. Well, that was a pretty violent thing that they did back then. Not to mention all of the tax collectors that they were dragging out of their homes and they were tarring and feathering. There are some very famous incidents um, where they were dragging uh, people out of their home and then going in and assaulting families inside. And these are the people that we have mythologized as being our patriots. These are our founders. These were the people doing those things. So I always think that language is incredibly important when you look at these different events. You jump ahead a little bit to after the country was founded and we see the Whiskey Rebellion, right? The Whiskey Rebellion. We, we like this revolutionary language for our founders and when we're teaching these things. And the Whiskey Rebellion was a very violent uprising. There, there was quite a bit of violence there. And all of those things were about taxes. Those were about people not wanting to pay taxes, uh, feeling oppressed by the government. In some of these historical events, and you look at the language that was used, it's the language is used to justify 
and I, and I would go so far as to say mythologize again, uh, the people that founded this country. Now we look at the people who have been disenfranchised and the way they're spoken about. And whenever the people who are disenfranchised from that point forward have rebelled or demonstrated or protested, and there is violence, as there always is violence accompanied with a lot of these, these types of activities, the, the demonization, I guess, is, is the best way to say it, is, is always used. There's rioting. You hear people calling them animals, these animals running around and rioting and destroying and destruction when they're really kind of doing the same things that got this country started. So I, I think language plays a tremendous role in the way events are unfolding in front of us, the way we view events, the way the media covers events, the way people use uh, this type of language, I guess, to justify the cracking down on these demonstrations, you know, where, you know, to, to, if anybody was watching, you know, most of the things that I saw were rather peaceful, but there was violence breaking out, you know, on the fringes. So I, I think terminology is, is really important when you look back to these events. How do you think we can get people to be consistent in the language that they use to discuss these type of events in the media? Or is that something that you think will always be a problem? I think everybody looks at events through their own lens, you know, through their own perspective. So if you're, if you're, you know, part of a disenfranchised group, then you're going to be looking at events through the lens of the oppressed. If you're looking, if you're someone who's enjoying the, the, uh, the position of being in power, then you're looking at demonstrations as they're attacking my position of power. They're attacking what I, what I know, and they're attacking what I have, right? So I think that that kind of consistency is probably never going to happen when you have this, you know, have and have not situation in these types of demonstrations. So it all depends on who, who you're talking to and who you're listening to, um, how they're, what language they're going to use to describe these things. I think it's important for everybody to listen and see and watch what's happening and listen to the words. You know, it's more important, I think, for the people who are listening to the words that are being used than it is to try to control what people are saying. Because I don't think you'll really ever be able to control what people are saying. And I don't really think that's something that any American wants, really. I don't think anybody wants to control what other people say. But I think Americans need to be very critical of what people are saying. So it's not a matter of, oh, I, I hope that they use language and, and the branding of this language. You know, one of, the, one, of, one of the more interesting things that I've heard with this defunding the police movement, you know, people don't want to listen to what that message is. They just hear the word defund and they have knee-jerk reactions, right? So other people, well, maybe you could change the messaging. Maybe you could say restructure. Maybe you could say this or that. But it really wouldn't matter what words you used at that point because the police are going to have their knee-jerk reaction. The oppressed are going to have their knee-jerk reaction. And there's not a whole lot of critical thinking going on there as, as to what, it, what the movement actually really means. So again, I think it's more important for the movement to listen and for the movement to be critical and for Americans to be critical of, of what they're hearing and not just, not just accept things as fact. I really like that you make, make that point about um, being critical to the information that you, you see or receive or what have you, because I've, what I, one of the things that I've um, definitely learned in my 
uh, journey becoming a lawyer and working as a paralegal is that you learn to be very critical of almost every single thing that you hear, regardless of who or where it's coming from. And so I think in this context, people um, are, so, are so accustomed to and almost you know, socialized to believe what the media um, and more specifically how the media puts out information um, when it pertains to events and things like this that we're discussing. And so I think, and so I think people have a notion almost to like that they can't question what they hear on the news. Or they can't question what they see on the news because it's the news. Like there's, there's no possible way that what I'm hearing on the news could be, you know, fabricated or misinformation even, you know? And so I think right. I, I, I really a point to be to that, that even though, the information that you're coming that you're getting is coming from a reliable source and i put that in air quotes um for our listeners uh it's important that you still are critical of what you're hearing because you know that that almost that that is what continues the cycle of ignorance is when you are so quick to believe every single thing that you hear and you don't take everything by a grain of salt and that's also just the, the common theme in that all together is people are quick to judge people are quick to not really want to do the work and they just see even sometimes with a, a title and article you know they'll they'll grab what they think that article is about and they'll really run with it so a lot of times people aren't doing the research they're not taking the time to really understand what things mean and i think that's where things can get misconstrued and no end result is really coming out of that yeah absolutely i think people are very quick to listen to taglines and and little bits of information and they're not really willing to be um, you know, thorough and in, in trying to understand what's actually happening. You know, people are not busting down windows. That didn't just happen out of nowhere. You know, that happened after years and years and years of, of oppression and years and years of feeling left out and disenfranchised. You know, no, nobody just freaks out and starts breaking windows, I guess, unless your team wins the uh, Super Bowl, then I guess you're allowed to destroy whatever you want to destroy, uh. right? <laughs> go ahead Sid I feel like you have something interesting to say See, like I, I just absolutely I mean I could not it, it's it's just again circling back to to even our prior episode where Malik mentioned and explained context and it's just you know it, it's it's so interesting and how we um misconstrue or our society really misconstrues language and how, how, how big of, of a role language plays in how we retell and relay these, this information in these events, because, you know, like you like as a kind just mentioned in one context, it's completely acceptable to be destructive and riot and wreak havoc. And in another, um, I mean, another meaning uh, protesting racial injustice, it's completely unacceptable. So you see it on college campuses all the time and you see the, the wording that's used for these disruptive kids or kids just having a little too much fun. And then you see the same exact situation, the narrative completely shifts. So that's, I'm happy you brought light to that. Which then also like kind of goes back to here on Long Island. Like when we, um, this started the Black Lives Matter movement, um, when we had the protests and it really varied from town to town, what people were prematurely calling these events or they would say you know some towns were dangerous opposed to other towns that were more safe and really again it comes down to language because people have the same intention you know they're out there protesting for the same reason but just demographic really played a role in it and it would be from town to town you know saying 
Merrick was supposed to be safer, but really we saw in the media, you know, that was a whole big event too. And that had a lot of media attention. And then there's other towns, um, even for say, just close to us, like Amityville or Freeport, who were, you know, meant out to be like more dangerous. And really it's not, it's the same, everyone's coming together for the same reason. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, from the march that that we attended you know when we were speaking to the police that were helping us us out and you look at how cooperative everybody was at that march the the chief uh, the guy in charge was saying that 95 96 percent of these things have been very very peaceful so it really you know and that's coming from somebody who's been at all of the alleys so it, it is important to who as to who you're listening to and it's important to listen critically for sure I noticed a common theme here with some of the sentiment that you've been telling us, Mr. Kramer. I feel like most of the opposition is because the general public seems to think of resources and human rights in a pie chart as opposed to something we can all have in parallel. So can you shed some light onto that as to why that sentiment exists in our country and probably all over the world? And how do we combat that? Yeah, if if I had the answer to that one, I think uh, I think uh, you and I would run for uh, president and vice together. I'd be the vice though, because I was I older. I'd I'd be your Joe Biden. I'd be fine. I'd be fine with that. Um, I vote. <laughs> I think that uh, I I think it, it's a very very strange thing, and I think the best that I can figure out from it is in all of these capitalistic countries that are built on capitalism, built on free market. I, I think people feel that if somebody else has more, you have less. You know, there's this zero-sum argument. It's not, it's a very popular argument. I certainly didn't come up with this. This has been around for, forever, but it's something that, that has always really confounded me. And, and that's, the, they look at the world as one pizza pie. And if I take a slice of their pizza, they have less pizza but the world is filled with pizza places and there's plenty of pizza to go around. And in a free market, there's plenty of resources to go around. Why aren't those resources spread out more evenly, right? Because people are terrified of, of socialism. They're terrified of this idea of, of, of distributing, you know, more evenly, right? So we fight for resources. And I, and I think that we're to rights. I think people really believe that, if somebody else gets more of the franchise, right? Just look at voting. If women get the right to vote, then men will lose the right to vote. Men's votes won't count, will count less. They'll lose power, right? So that's a really kind of easy one to look at, right? Then when it comes to the civil rights movement, when you look at housing and you look at, you know, you know look at fair housing, you look at the Voting Rights Act, you look at the Civil Rights Act, you look at these momentous times, the white power structure really in the South felt that if, if other people got rights, their rights would be diminished. Their rights would be less. The, the um, same-sex marriage, that, that was all about that. Everybody said, well, if you allow gay people to get married, then my marriage isn't going to mean as much. Like, wow, how is that possible? Why would your marriage mean it? How could other people loving each other make you feel less about your marriage or make your marriage worthless or worthless? So this zero-sum argument is a very, very tough one to, to really 
to really get at. You know, I, I don't know. I, I really have no answer to that. I just think that people, people feel threatened, very threatened, when other people get the same things they have because they start to feel like their things are worth less. And I don't know how you would combat that. I don't know how you would convince people that feel that way that, well, you know, it'd be all right if you let other people vote. That's fine. You can still vote. Nobody's telling you you can't. You can let other people get married. I'm not telling you you can't get married. Um, so I don't know. It's it's a it's a very strange one for me. I I don't know. I have no answer for that one. But it's but it's there. It's very palpable. People really feel that. Well, I th I think it's important. I guess a good place to start maybe with maybe with answering that is at least I think making it known and educating people and, and making people aware of, again, in this context of the history, like this, this mindset and this notion that in our country, if African-Americans or black people are given more rights, when really it's not even, even the language in that, it's not even more rights, it's just equal. You know, just we don't equal. have, we, we, it's just equal, we're not, asking even if maybe we arguably should be where no one's asking for more than it's to it's to be equal if something's not equal then you need more for it to be equal and so this whole mindset that if black people have equal rights or equal opportunity that somehow the yeah the white power structure diminishes or white people are 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 threatened or, or something like that is is comes from the beginning of time to, to, to slavery in this country and you know how that was that was that same exact fear and that same exact mindset was used to stop slaves from you know educating themselves they were they were forbidden to read and write because they were there was a fear and a mindset that if they did read and write they would educate themselves enough to fight back and fight the power structure that was oppressing them and so knowing that history and understanding that history lets people start to understand how we got here and how we can move forward with diminishing that which is just crazy that the fear of loss of power even comes to that. Like, that's something that's just absolutely insane. But that, that really does define history. You know, I, I really do subscribe to that. I, I subscribe to those, those in power and the power structure keeping their power has really defined every movement. It's defined every historical period. It's defined every religion, every organized church, every kingdom, um, it's just, it's, it's the power structure and, and who, who is controlling, you know, when you said earlier, you know, about looking globally, you know, we, one of the things that I, I used to teach when I taught 10th grade and things that I studied pretty well were, you know, you look at revolution and the Russian revolution and you look at those two revolutions, those are, those are all about unequal distribution of resource. I mean, there was one group had all the resources and then the other group had none of the resources. And you look at the violence that occurred there, you know, we had the reign of terror in, the, in France and that was, you know, those were wealthy people getting their heads cut off. Those weren't just, you know, low lifes, jerks, you know, that you hear that kind of language, right? I mean, these were, these were pretty, pretty well off people. A king got his head cut off. You know, so you talk about violence and you talk about power structure, like it, it comes to that. And, and if you look historically, if you don't take care of the, the majority of people, it's going to come to that. It always has. It always has. Right. I think that's, I think that's really interesting. And just the, the question that we've been bouncing back and forth about why are people afraid of giving other groups more rights? I think it's, my stab at that question would be that it's derived in intimidation. I use this example of running a race. So let's say one person is running a 400 meter race. 
and the other person starts 100 meters behind and they finish close to the same or that person wins by the skin of their teeth or, you know, whatever, the, the, the difference is negligible. If I'm the person that won, I am going to be terrified if that person starts right next to me, if the race is for anything substantial. When you're of the group that has most of the resources, I think it's derived in a fear of competition. And if you are a red-blooded American, if you believe and subscribe to capitalism, again, you're being hypocritical. Because if you subscribe to this, the best man should always win, uh, the best, the cream of the crop rises in competition, you should want every single person in that competition to have an equal shot, a genuine equal shot. Otherwise, you don't believe in the rhetoric you're preaching. That would be my stab at that. Yeah, I, I don't think many people subscribe to that. I don't, I don't think that there's, there are many people that exist that don't want to stay in power. The, the interesting thing is, is that 98% of these people are not in power. You know, there's only 2% of this country has, has the money. And they've convinced this other 98% that, you know, go with us, go with us, because we've got all the money, you know. And, and then you look, you know, you look historically you look at slavery, right? You look at slavery in the South, the numbers are astonishing. If you ever look at the numbers of actual slave owners, people who actually own slaves, compared to the amount of people that didn't, the numbers are able to look at. So what about all these non-slave holding white people in the South? They could never afford a slave. They couldn't, there's no way they could. They couldn't afford to do this. Why were they pro-slavery? They, the slaves were undercutting their, their labor. They, all these very, very wealthy people were using free labor while these very small farmers were having to do everything themselves and they couldn't pay anybody to, to do the work. So how did, how did the power structure, the white power structure, the slave-owning power structure, how did they convince the poor pig farmers in West Virginia that slavery was a good thing? Mm, it was pretty easy because they're black and you're not and you're better than them. So as long as you're better than the slaves, let's keep slaves around. It was a very simple thing. It was a very simple trick, right? So I think that has held throughout our history. As long as you're not on the bottom, vote with the top, you know, as long as you always have a group below you. So then, you know, how do, how do, you, how do you get those groups? Or how do you include those groups in the fold to begin with? For the, you know, to get with it. It's, it's, it's very basic, you know. People like having people below them or feel like there are people below them or worse off. I think one of the reasons, one of the ways that our, that the president became the president of this country and maybe those same groups, people are now seeing that that is a farcity, that, that that mindset clearly does not work. And we've seen that in the last four years. So maybe that's a good place to start. Real life mm. example. <laughs> yeah goes back throughout all our politics. I feel like Reaganomics used the same logic that you're talking about. It absolutely did. Trickle down, trickle down supply side for me, you know, is what was one of the greatest tricks that has ever been played on the middle class, that they actually believe that these incredibly wealthy people are going to share. share their wealth. Right. Historically, it's never happened. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know historically ever that this has happened. You, you might have one or two philanthropic billionaires that spread their money around a little bit, but the wealthy people don't give money to the, that just doesn't happen. So that, 
supply side economics and trickle down economics and lower tax rates for corporations has never ever created more jobs. It just hasn't. It's never happened. So you're right. You know, Reaganomics is, is a classic example. This has been great. I, I think we just wanted to touch on a couple more points before we run out of time here. Mr. Kramer, we generally have a political policy of policing the entire world. Meanwhile, we, there's a lot of injustices that happen within our borders that the general public seems to turn a blind eye to or the media or uh, our government, whatever the case may be. So can you speak on that? Yeah, sure. Well, we've only ever policed the world where our economic interests are there. You know, we only police places where we think that we're either going to make money or lose money. So, you know, why did we why did we go into the Middle East ever? There's only one reason because the resources that were there, right? And you know, we we have our democratic allies there in Israel, but that is all about about the oil. Why did we go over to Vietnam? Because we thought we were losing the China and communism and Russia to communism. You know, why, why did we go in there? It was always economics and it's always been economics. So why do we police the world and not, and not focus resources here? It's because we don't see the money here. You know, we don't see the money in, in investing into resources, into neighborhoods that need resources. We see that, or our power structure sees that as, as, as a bonus. You know, as long as we have unemployed, as long as we have a, a decent number of unemployed people, capitalism works. Because once everybody's employed, capitalism doesn't really work anymore. So, you know, then, you know, we get into socialist policies. Well, we must be doing something socialist if everybody's got a job, right? So it doesn't pay for the United States to invest here, but it, it definitely pays for the United States and the military to go to other places where our where our global interests are involved. I don't. I can't think of one humanitarian thing that we did or headed off ever. You know, we relate to Bosnia, we relate to Rwanda, we relate to the Middle East. We we relate everywhere. We just we just went in when we thought that our uh, you know our economics. The only thing, World War Two we got into because we were getting attacked. You know, we were never going to get in there until it came to our shores. You know, it just wasn't going to happen. And I think that leads right into the next question we had for you. Um, we wanted to know if you had any idea on how we rectify this power structure in the United States. How do we get the general public to subscribe that a more equal playing field benefits the large majority of the country? I would say it would involve investing resources domestically, but do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, there, there have certainly been you know, big time periods and, and, you know, obviously where politics is, is rather obvious, but if you look at the new deal, if you look at the investments that were made during the new deal, and if you look at the great society and the investments that were made during Lyndon Johnson's administration, those were the times where we actually started evening the playing field. Those were the times when we actually started attacking poverty. You know, certainly the new deal is still the 1940s. So, we're not, you know, we're not dealing with the South yet, but we are dealing with poverty and we're dealing with unemployment and we're dealing with the government taking a much bigger role in the economy. And then you look at the great society where we actually started dealing with the South and, and poverty and, and unemployment and, and voting. So where does that lead us? For me, 
It leads us to progressive change. It leads us to voting for progressives. And it leads me to say to everybody out there, don't let people make you feel bad. Don't let people demonize you if you, if you have these progressive ideas. If you think healthcare is a right, you should probably stick to your guns on that one. Healthcare should probably be a right. If you think that a basic living income is a right, you should stick to your guns and say that, yeah, a basic income in the United States is a doable thing. There's enough resources to go around for every adult person to make a living wage. You know, you, you have these people demonizing people that work at McDonald's and like, why? Why are you demonizing these people? They're giving you a Big Mac for God's sakes. It's one of the greatest things ever created in this world. Let them give you the Big Mac and pay them. Pay them their money. McDonald's has plenty of money. They can pay their workers. So, you know, it, it's, it's gross. It's, it's gross. Because, you know, you look back and you look back to the, uh, the factory workers, you look back to the assembly line, nobody was demonizing those people. Nobody was saying what, what low-life jerks are working at these factories. That was hard work. And they got paid a living wage and they got paid a good minimum wage and they could support their family on those kinds of jobs. And those factory jobs are now food. Those factory jobs are now Walmart and Target and whatever they are. And, and those people should also be allowed to make a living wage and, and do these things. So, you know, for me, for me, it's very obvious. It's, it's we have to get back to the government investing in the economy and not these incredible tax breaks for the very wealthy. And of, and of course, that comes at the voting booth. That comes for voting in progressives. That comes in for voting for people who want to tax the wealthy a little bit more, which is not a gross thing to say to anybody because you can only make that kind of money here in the United States, and reinvesting. And sure, redistributing the wealth is fine. That's fine. Let some people go see a doctor. It's fine. It's, it's funny you bring up all these quote-unquote lower-class citizens because, I mean, look at the pandemic. Who are we depending on? Yeah. Essential workers that don't make that much money. Um, so it's, it's a very, it's a very interesting. Yeah. And even, you know, they, they get lauded and they get applauded on, on Facebook or whatever, but then in real life, these people go in and spit in their face and tell them they're not going to wear a mask. I mean, people are nuts. You know, yeah. the way they treat minimum wage workers, minimum wage workers are treated like garbage in this country. It's, it's crazy. But it's like times like this, they, you know, you've really shown the importance and still people don't appreciate. So People got to wake up. Yep. I would probably just, as a last thing, ask you to bring us home, like in closing, uh, tie this all together for us. Um, how should a, a cognizant individual view the rioting, you know, considering all the history that we went over and all the facts that um, should be considered when you consume this type of media? And, you know, is it a necessary evil? Should it be demonized? Um, Bring us home. Like, yeah, you know, I think I think the rioting is, you know, it's not it's not the it's not the message. The rioting obviously isn't the message. The rioting is a symptom of long of long term oppression, right? So, you know, our most famous civil rights leader, you know, Martin Luther, but he he said it right. He it, it's the best it's the best quote about this, and and he said a, a riot is the language of the unheard, right? If you're not listening and you refuse to listen to what we're saying to you, then we have no recourse. You know, he, he preached nonviolence to, to his death. Of course he did. But he also understood why people were lashing out. And he also understood why things become violent. And, and that's historical. That is not, that is not um, 
distinctive to the American way of life. That, that is historic. That's Spartacus, for God's sakes. That's, that's Russian Revolution. That's French Revolution. That's, that's when you get people angry. People are hungry. People don't have resources, and people don't have food, and people don't have houses. There's going to be some violence, especially when there's such disparate income in a country, especially when the incredibly wealthy have what they have. There, there's going to be violence. It's, it's historic. Um, this, this was amazing. I learned a lot. I'll speak for myself. Uh, you're very insightful. Me too. Very thank you. To, so much, Mr. Kramer. This was great. Yeah. Uh, thank you guys so much for having me. No problem. You guys are amazing. You really are. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Definitely not be the last time we hear from you, Mr. Kramer. Yeah, that was dope. So I just want to quickly go over uh, the topic of discussion for next week. We're going to be taking a deep dive into racial discrimination from a real estate perspective um, in our home area of Long Island. So we're going to be inviting a special guest that's well-versed in that subject matter. And so we're looking forward to that. And if you like what you hear on our podcast, head over to our new Facebook, Discriminology 3. Don't forget to like, comment, engage in more conversation. We're interactive and we're here for you. Thank you all for tuning in this week. We'll catch you in the next one. Later. Bye. See you later, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Discriminology Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and to follow us on Instagram at Discriminology underscore podcast or on Facebook at Discriminology 3. Until next time, peace.